have your, your copy of God's Word and would like to open to that uplifting chapter. <laughs> Micah chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. And um, let me encourage you to grab, <clears throat> excuse me, let me encourage you to grab your outline as well because I do have some things for you to write, even if you're not a normally a uh, fill-in-the-blank writer. I know not everybody likes to do that, but I want to try something a little different today. I want to ask you a question, and that is this, who is a leader that you admire? You see that question in your outline, who is a leader that you admire? This might be a political leader, it could be a Sunday school teacher, it could be an educator, an influencer, even a family member. I want you to write down that person's name on your outline, and then I want you to write one thing that you admire about that person. What is one thing you admire that person? Go ahead, do that real quickly. Think about it. When it looks like people's eyes are back up here, I'll take us to the, to the next question. Actually, the next thing. Not everybody got outlines on the way in. I see. So here's what I'd like you to do. Take your sheet and, and turn to the person on your right. So going this way. Turn to the person on your right and show them, here's the person I admire and here's what I like about them. And if you're on the end... Obviously, you have no one to your right, so you have to go to your left. All right, so real quickly tell them, here's, here's who I like, and here's, here's what I like about them. All right. All right, Joy, thanks for getting up and, and going to the person on your right. Way to go. Yeah, for some of us, it'll be easier to talk to the person on our right than others. I know this is not a normal way to start a sermon, but I want to get you thinking. All right, so there's a, ne- a second question on your outline. Second question on your outline. Who, this is going to be a bit more controversial, who is a leader that you despise, that you detest, that you cannot stand? And what is one thing that you cannot stand about that leader, about that person? Again, it could be a teacher. It could be a political leader. It could be an influencer. It could be a family member. It could be a pastor. Who is a leader that you detest? Write down one thing that you don't like about them. And then, so, just so we can be an equal opportunity gossiper, I want you to share that with the person on your left. Of course, if you're on the end, you get to share with the person on your right. So kind of share that way. Sandy, you'll just have to like... In your brain. Okay, okay. So I know that doing an exercise like this kind of gets us, could could spark a lot of conversation. I hope it gets us thinking. It could be controversial. But there's a sad reality in our world, and you kind of maybe gathered it from what Tyler read as we read Micah 3, and that is that crookedness and corruption abound in areas of leadership, whether it's in business, in government, and even in religious circles. Leaders who are in places of influence and authority, they set the tone for either their nation, their town, their organization, their church, or even their family. And they they set the tone either with acts of integrity or with acts that introduce corruption to that entity. 
And speaking of corruption, did you know that there is a, an annual CPI, a Corruption Perceptions Index? And there's an organization called the Transparency International, and their mission is to stop corruption and promote transparency, accountability, and integrity at all levels across all sectors of society, whatever their standards might be. I don't know a ton about this group, but I, I was, it was interesting. On Wednesday night, we were praying together, and of course, on our prayer list that you get in the midweek, um, on our prayer list, the nation that we were praying for this week was Brazil. And Don um, pointed out that there was a lot of corruption in the nation of Brazil, and I knew we were talking about corruption, so I thought, well, let me check this out. Well, I found this corruption index. So Don, thank you for pointing out that there was corruption in Brazil. But here's what happens. In this annual corruption index or corruption percented, uh, perceptions index, they rank nations on a scale of zero, meaning most corrupt, to 100, least corrupt, um, over you know, all, all nations of the world. And so was, what I found very interesting is the nation at the top of the list is a nation that has been there for several years. Can anybody guess what you think that nation might be? Russia? Did you say Russia? No. Russia is low on the list. Actually, the nation is Denmark. Denmark last year had a score of 90. They are apparently the most open, transparent, and least corrupt nation in the world. But they're not perfect. You know what the least, the most corrupt nation on the planet is? And it's been there kind of like Denmark's been at the top. This nation's been at the bottom for years. The nation of Somalia with a score of 12. In fact, just last year, they elected a president for the, his second non-consecutive term. And uh, so he served early in the 20-teens and then now just got reelected. Within the first six months of his election, he disbanded two anti-corruption agencies in his government. I think he wants to get away with a bit more. In case you're wondering where the United States stands, this year we we're at 69. Up from last year, we we're at 67. So even we have a ways to go. And unfortunately, as you can imagine, there is also corruption in, in the religious world as well. There is no shortage of pastors, priests, religious leaders who have used their positions to gain excessive wealth, power, and influence, even compromising the message of the gospel. There have been controversies around sexual abuse and infidelity among leaders in nearly every denomination of Christianity and every religion of the world. And I wish I could say that there was a different story among Southern Baptists. In fact, just last year, uh, a couple years ago, the, the SBC, the convention, called together or, or called for the president to appoint a, a, a sexual abuse task force. And last year, that abuse task force released a list of 700 pastors and church leaders in the last 20 or 30 years who have engaged in sexual abuse or misconduct of some kind. Now, in a, con in a convention of over 50,000 churches and over 14 million people, 700 is a really small number. But even one would be a number that is too big. And sadly, this is not a new thing. When Martin Luther was writing, he wrote against the same kind of corruption that was happening in the church in his day. And as we continue our study in the book of Micah, we're going to see that Micah preached against the very same corruption, both political and religious, in his day. 
Because our world is stained and mired by sin, we will be in this fight until Christ returns. So let me kind of introduce Micah chapter 3 to you, just kind of give you some, bear, some bearing on how to look at this, how to, how to read Micah, uh, Micah 3, because I, I don't know if you're like me, sometimes when I read biblical poetry, it's just challenging. There's so many old words, there's old context that you don't quite get. There's just things that are, are challenging to read. And so let me just, if you have your copy of God's Word open, I want to help you understand a little bit of how... Um, how this works. You see, in chapter, in the first couple of chapters, Micah pointed out the idolatry and uh, the covetousness that was plaguing, and that really made up his first sermon to the people of Israel and Judah. And now here he begins a second sermon, a different sermon, pointed, I think, specifically at the leaders. And if you look in Micah chapter 3, it seems to be divided into three stanzas or three verses, three sections, and each of them four verses long. You have the, the first four verses that really deal with the political leaders, that deal with the, the governing authorities. You have verses five through eight that points out to the prophets with a little caveat of Micah talking about how he is a different kind of prophet. And then finally, in verses 9 through 12, you have uh, a judgment for all, judgment for the whole nation. And, and for me, as I wrestled with this, there was another image that kind of came to mind because I, I noticed as Micah was writing this, he's writing sort of allegations against uh, the, the leaders, and then he writes God's response. So you see that in verses 1 through 3. The, his allegation against the leaders and then God's response in verse 4. And then he goes to the prophets, verse 5, and tells them, here's what you're doing wrong. And, and in verses 6 and 7, he talks about, well, here's how God's going to respond to you. And then he talks again about his life. And then he finishes by talking about the result that will happen in, for the whole nation. And I don't know if this will help. I know some of us are visual learners. But I came up with a little picture. It's an ugly picture. But I hope it helps you understand how Micah is, is, is positioned out. If you go to the online Links. I tried to include this in your handout, but it was too small. But if you look at the first couple of verses, again, you have uh, the corrupt, corruption of the leaders and God's response. Then on the other side, you have uh, the corruption of the prophets and, again, God's response. Micah's perspective, that little thing in yellow. And then together he finishes by looking at how God will judge the nation because of these two sets of leaders. Kind of looks like a little letter Y, kind of ugly letter Y. But I hope that helps you as you, as you kind of read through this. Maybe if you go back later today or later this week to reread Micah 3, I hope it helps you dive into that or understand it more. But let's dive into Micah's message as he begins, to, he, he begins with what seems like a charge against the governing leaders. And essentially he's saying that crooked governing leaders will not be heard by God. Crooked governing leaders will not be heard by God. Well, let's think about this for a quick second. What is the role that governing leaders have? Governing leaders are designed to, to sit in, in a place of responsibility in order to work toward the flourishing of a nation. They're to set out policies and laws and rules to help make sure the nation is a place that can thrive. They want prosperity for the people, ideally. They should be executing justice by upholding the laws of the nation. And yet, so often, even in our day, we find that the people with the most power, most influence, most popularity seem to be above the law. Governing leaders are supposed to act for the security of the nation. 
act for the good of the nation, the state, the city, and the town. And yet, what do we often see? There are some people who genuinely desire to serve. They genuinely desire to go into politics, to go into government in order to make a difference. And yet, so often we see that they get in there and a few years later, a few months later, the system begins to corrupt them. I do appreciate the fact that here in Poolsville, our commissioners are people who act who serve voluntarily. I mean, can you believe it? The, the six people that we have serving our little town serve voluntarily, and they spend hours making sure that our, our town is safe and will prosper and we have water. And, and yet, what do we often find? And not only do we see corruption, but we see vast polarization. People unable to look at each other, unable to talk to each other, unable to have conversations. There's people who gain a lot. There's personal gain that happens. Average people going into public service often come out wealthy beyond all belief. And we wonder, how could that happen? Many of them are seeking the good of the party above the good of the nation. And I wonder if this might be one of the reasons why God calls us to pray for our leaders so that there is peace for us and peace for our nation. And we may not always see crooked leaders, but often their actions and their paths are not very straight either. There's always a little weaving to get around rules and finding loopholes. Well, Micah called out against Israel's political and governing leaders. He says in the first three verses, Then I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? who tear the skin from my people and flesh and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. One of Israel's enemies in that day was the nation of Assyria, a wicked and evil nation. And when they would conquer their people, when they would conquer enemy tribes, they would often do some of the very things that Micah is accusing the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel of doing. They would flay people, taking their skin off them. They would just butcher them and, and do horrible things to them. And so here, Israel's leader, the, the nation that is supposed to be called out by God, their leaders are acting like wicked people like pagans, like heathens. They love evil. They hate what is good. They have an affection for crooked practices and ungodly behavior. And as we saw before, a couple weeks ago, they were seizing property and taking advantage of the vulnerable, the very people they were supposed to be defending. They were practically cannibalizing the people, the very people they should have been caring for. And so Micah tells him, in, in response to how you're doing this, here's what God is going to do, or rather, here's what God is not going to do. He's not going to listen. God is going to turn a deaf ear. Micah 3, 4 says, Then you beg the Lord for help in times of trouble. Do you really expect him to answer? After all the evil you have done, he won't even look at you. You see, God's point through Micah is that he won't listen to their cries for help when disaster comes. Do you remember where you were at 9-11, September 11, 2001? I was on my way to, to work. 
And, and in, the, in the days and weeks and months following that, there were all these signs that went up everywhere. God bless America. God, please hear us, help us out. And I know for some of you guys who are, who are way younger than being born in 2001, you don't even know any of this. But it was really interesting. People started coming back to church. They were crying out, God, why did you allow this to happen? And I don't know exactly if, in, if 9-11 was God's judgment on our nation. We have to remember that the United States is not Israel. We are not a theocracy. We are not written about in Scripture, but his people are. Maybe God was judging our nation. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. But did you notice that so often we, the, every, a lot of people came back saying, God, please help us. Why would you allow this to happen? And, and it's almost as though, like, like he did with the people of Israel, he said, why should I hear you when you act this way? When challenges do come, and I think there will be challenges until we all get called home, when challenges do come, I pray that we individually and us as a nation, that our leaders would cry out to God from a place of justice and uprightness, not from a place of entitlement, not from a place of saying, I'm an American, I shouldn't have to endure this. Baloney. God is God. And he will allow what he will allow. May we humble ourselves before him. May our leaders humble themselves before him. But Micah's message wasn't only for the political leaders. You see, he also prophesied against the religious leaders, essentially saying that corrupt religious leaders will not hear from God. Corrupt religious leaders will not hear from God. When you think about it, what is the purpose of a religious leader or a spiritual leader or a pastor or a priest? You know, ideally, we're supposed to preach the word of God. We're supposed to study this and, and make sure that what is in here is conveyed out of our mouths so that we all can understand this. Religious leaders in, in other sects and other denominations and other religions, obviously, they're in, intended to preach and teach and guide people into things that would lead them in the way of, of that religion. Thinking specifically about the Christian church, religious leaders, pastors, elders are supposed to shepherd the people of God. We're supposed to care for those in need, especially the weak and the disadvantaged. And often we do see that. And I hope that your religious leaders, your elders, your pastor are men who lead this way. But as I mentioned earlier, too often we've heard of pastors and religious leaders falling into sin, getting tripped up by various vices, taking advantage of weakened and vulnerable people, getting excessively wealthy by preaching a gospel of prosperity. If you'll only give me a little bit more, God will surely bless you. That's not the way that God works. And in Israel and Judah, the religious leaders, the prophets were not preaching the word of God. They were tickling people's ears. What do you want to hear if you just feed me? Give me a little more. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. I'll preach blessing if you just fill my pocket, fill my stomach, right? Look at what Micah says beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat but declare war against those who put nothing 
into their mouths. And rather than turning to God and his word for a message, they were turning to people and say, if you feed me well, I'll preach prosperity to you. But if you don't, I'll preach condemnation. And what a corrupt way of acting and preaching. And as a result, Micah tells them that they will not hear from the Lord because it will be a season of darkness. Look at verses 6 through 7. The New Living Translation says it this way, Now night will close, now the night will close around you, cutting off all your visions. Darkness will cover you, putting an end to your predictions. The sun will set for you, prophets, and your day will come to an end. Then you seers will be put to shame, and you fortune tellers will be disgraced. And you will cover your faces because there is no answer from God. You see, the way that prophets worked in, in, G, in, in Micah's day is prophets were intended. They would get a special revelation from God, and they were intended to go and preach that and share that. And what God is saying is that because you're not preaching my word, because you're not telling people what I've told you to tell them, you're telling them whatever they want to hear, you're not going to hear from me ever again. It's as though I'm going to plug your ears, and I'm going to cover your eyes, and you will not see this. In fact, a couple of hundred years after Micah's prophecy, after the nation returned from exile, there was a period of spiritual darkness. For roughly 400 years, there were no prophets in Israel. We have no clear word that God was speaking to the Israelites through prophets. There was silence from God. There were people acting justly. There were people returning to true biblical worship. They were reading the word. They were sacrificing. They were doing all the things they were supposed to do, but there was no special revelation from God, at least as far as we can tell. In fact, in, in, your, in our Bibles, the, the, the little one page, the blank page that you might have between Malachi and Matthew is 400 years of Israeli history. No word from God. Blank. And in our day, as, uh, yeah, and, and I think this may very well be because of the corruption that, that they saw in the prophets and the religious leaders. They were filling their bellies and patting their pockets. And that resulted in silence from God. And in our day, you know, the matter of compensation for pastors is often a, a touchy subject. I've heard it said some churches have this, have this mentality, Lord, if you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor, right? And then there are others who, have, who don't have a biblical mindset, and they're, they're essentially paying their pastors like CEOs, people who are making so much money that it dishonors God. They have no reason to depend on and I'm grateful for the way that we've tried to strike a healthy balance here. Enough to provide not too much, not too little. So thank you. But Paul writes that a pastor, an elder, must not be a lover of money, 1 Timothy 3.3, or greedy for gain in Titus 1.7. And so I want to encourage you, as you pray for your elders, as you pray for Carl and Vern and Brian and even especially Airmall and me, because we do receive compensation from the church for the work that we do. Please pray that contentment would mark our perspective on money. And pray that we would continue to be motivated 
by the ministry of the word and guided by the spirit and not by any worldly gain, whether that's money or whether that's acclaim, whether that's fame, whether that's being liked, may our ministry be guided by the word. Please pray for us in that. And both the religious and the political leaders of Micah's day were failing the people. And more importantly, they were failing God's expectations. And so the very last stanza, we're going to skip over one verse. We'll get back to that. But the last stanza, Micah essentially communicates that calamity is the result of failed leadership. Calamity is the result of failed leadership. And because of how the leaders led the nation, destruction and calamity would ensue. Verses 9 through 12, look at what it says. It says, listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and twist all that is right. You're building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. You rulers make decisions based on bribes. You priests teach God's laws only for a price. You prophets won't prophesy unless you're paid. Yet all of you claim to depend on the Lord. No harm can come to us, you say, for the Lord is here among us. But because of you, Mount Zion will be plowed like an open field. Jerusalem will be reduced to ruins. A thicket will grow on the heights where the temple now stands. Did you notice how Micah hit on each category? He hit on the political leaders. He hit on the prophets and he hit on the priests, the people who would perform the sacrifices. And yet what an indictment, the bribery, the corruption, the murder, the false teaching. This marked the religious and the political leaders of Micah's day. And in case you're not quite familiar with Middle Eastern, with with Israeli geography, the city of Jerusalem sits on top of a mountain, really on top of several mountains, and is surrounded by a few others. It's a very secure place. And one of those peaks on that mountain is Mount Zion, where the temple sits. And God says that when this destruction comes, that mountain will be plowed like a field. Living here in in and around Poolsville, we see a lot of open fields. And there's a few times a year when we get to watch them be plowed. And we notice, if you notice, it doesn't often happen on the mountains. Sugarloaf Mountain has too many trees and too many rocks to be a good place to, be, to, be, uh, to grow things other than the, the trees that kind of grow there naturally. It's not good farmland. And it seems like God is, is going to tear up the ground, tear down this mountain, if you will, in order to start something new, in order to rip away from the people the very thing that they had their confidence in. Because their confidence ultimately wasn't in God. And in about 587 B.C., roughly 150 years after Micah served, after he prophesied this, the nation of Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, tore it to pieces. Micah's message and God's judgment came to fruition. And, you know, we may not lead nations or civil governments, and most of us are not called to be religious leaders, but I think that all of us at different times in our lives in different relationships are called to lead. We lead in various capacities. We lead our families. We lead our work groups. Maybe it's even among friends. 
You might not think, oh, and I'm not a leader among my friends, but have you ever led them to do something? Have you ever picked an activity that all your friends are going to do with you? Going to see this movie or that or playing this game or tipping over that cow? No, don't do that. But like the leaders in Israel and Judah, we must be aware of the calamity and destruction that is a result of crooked and corrupt leadership. If we are not men and women of of integrity, of authenticity, it will come back to haunt us. So in the areas where you and I lead, how are we doing? Are we marked by crookedness that results in more power, more fame, more acclaim, more likes? Or are we motivated by wealth so much that we corrupt God's standards of how we should live? But right in the middle of the chapter, Micah seems to make a caveat. And he contrasts his calling, the calling that God had placed on his life with the activity of the false prophets. He says, I'm not a prophet like you. I'm doing it a little bit differently. And essentially, I think we could say that Micah in some ways is providing characteristics of godly leaders. He's helping us understand what the true leader who is from God, what they should lead like. Look at what it says in verse 8. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the Holy Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And let's consider briefly the three characteristics that Micah lays out. Because I think, first of all, Micah tells us that a godly leader should be empowered by the Spirit of God. A godly leader at home in the workplace, in your neighborhood, if you get called into government in the church, needs to be empowered by the Spirit of God. Rather than using crooked tactics and corrupt methodologies to gain power, God's leaders should be empowered by the Spirit of God. And the Bible communicates that if we are God's children, if we have responded to his call, if we said, yes, Jesus, I know that you died on the cross for my sins, I believe. God, the Bible tells us that we are endowed, we are gifted with his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit indwells us to serve him and to serve his people. The Spirit helps us to pray. It guides our activity. He grants us boldness when needed and gives us words to say. So I pray that we would repent when the Spirit convicts, when he says, no, don't do this, that we would repent and turn. And may we respond when the Spirit prompts us to action, even at our own expense. Godly leaders need to be empowered by God's Spirit. But secondly, godly leaders need to execute justice by God's standard. Micah says that he acts with justice and might because of the empowerment he has from God. Justice should be an equal justice. It's not tipping the scales in favor of one person. It's not, it's not going to the rich and saying, yeah, let me, I'll, I'll help you because you have the ability to help me back. And it's not changing the standards for the poor. Sure, we need to look out for them. We need to help them. But it's not changing the scale. God's standard is holy and just. God detests when we show favoritism. We shouldn't bend the standards in favor of the poor, and we shouldn't pander to the wealthy, and we certainly 
should not get personal gain from our execution of judgment. But finally, a godly leader should be willing to expose sins according to the word of God. You see, it's sometimes difficult for for us to want to confront sin. We want to speak grace and mercy. We want to overlook what people might be doing wrong. We do want to speak grace and mercy, and we should, but that doesn't mean that we redefine what sin is and what sin isn't. The question becomes, whose sin do we expose and to whom do we expose it? Well, the New Testament gives us some insight in that. First of all, we expose and address our own sins, confessing our sins to God and to those we've offended. In, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, Jesus tells, tells, told his listeners when he was in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Let that imagery sink in. Have you ever had that little dusty thing in your eye? He's trying to help us see we've got a plank sticking out of our face. How can you look at the the speck in your brother's eye when you've got this log? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. And don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and then turn back and attack you. And essentially, I think Jesus is saying is when we have our house in order, when we are in a good place, when we are justified before God, when we've repented of our sin then we can use that equal standard and address sin in other people. Exposing the sins of brothers and sisters in Christ, members in the church. And and especially it is in the church, it is among the church that we get to speak into one another's lives. It's not so that we can belittle each other. It's not so we can make each other feel bad. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You're not as good a Christian as I am but it's so that we can encourage each other and challenge each other toward holiness. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Not on Facebook, not on Twitter, not on Instagram or Snapchat or Reels or whatever that is, the latest thing is. Tell it between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And then Jesus continues, if, they, if he doesn't listen, he, he gives us some more information about how we should respond. But sometimes we're, we're tempted to call out sins in the world, and there are even some who would stand on street corners. A couple years ago when Andrew and Zoe and I went out to the Southern Baptist Convention, there were people yelling and preaching, and it was just, it was crazy on the street corners, and they were preaching at Baptists. They were preaching at brothers and sisters in Christ, but they were preaching about things that weren't indicative of of the people who were there. It was weird. They should have gone about three blocks away to, to the main part of Nashville, but actually they shouldn't have done that either. Paul says this in regard to people outside the church. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 1 Corinthians 5.12. Is it not those 
inside the church whom you are to judge? We do need to address sin in the world, but it's not going to be on a big global scale. I think it's going to be one-on-one as the Spirit leads us, as we get to witness and, wit- and evangelize. But ultimately, it's inside the church that we get to bring correction to one another. See, ultimately, God will judge the rest of the world. We are called to help each other move toward holiness. But then he says this. He said, our, our lives, our very lives, the way that we live, will be an aroma of judgment on the rest of the world if we are living holy and godly lives. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So in closing, Micah was given a very specific role to play in Israel and Judah. He was given a message for the political and religious leaders. And we may want to step out and be like Micah on social media or other places, calling out leaders. And I do wonder if a better response would be to use the ballot box for our political leaders and use our personal relationships for our religious leaders. I think it does very little to talk about a pastor, an author, a professor, a Christian influencer across the country, and it may do more damage for the gospel, for the ministry of Christ, if we're spewing stuff on social media rather than addressing things personally. And I want to encourage you, if you see when, not if, because you will, when you see sin in me, come and talk to me about it. Come and confront me. Say, Joel, I think this is out of alignment in your life. As your brother in Christ, I am accountable to you. I'm accountable to God. Just as you are accountable to me and accountable to God. But I think finally, Jesus is our best example of a godly leader. When he walked on earth, he was called to read from the prophet Isaiah. And he told, he read at that time, the spirit of the Lord was upon me. And he came to execute justice. And he exposed our sin. And then he went the extra step. He didn't just expose and say, y'all are sinners. But he said, let me take on your sin, on myself, on my perfect being and bear the sin of the world. He took our judgment. He took the calamity that we deserve. And So I want to encourage you, if you've not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, understand that because of your sin, there will be a time of judgment. Because of my sin, there was a time of judgment. There will be, and Jesus paid for that. And I pray that you would respond by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I'd love to talk with you about that, what that means to be a follower of Christ. Well, at the beginning, I asked you to write down a couple of names. Good leaders, bad leaders. And as we close, I want to I encourage you to write down the crookedness or corruption that the Holy Spirit may have been exposing in your heart. What is something that the Holy Spirit might be convicting you of? We're going to sing in a moment, and then after that, we'll have a moment of silence. And maybe just pray and say, Spirit, help me 
to root this out of my life, that I might be holy before you in all the areas that you call me to lead. We may not all lead in big ways, but we will all lead at some point, and I pray that we would lead with godly integrity. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Even the difficult word as this chapter has been, Lord, help us to understand the seriousness that you call us to, when you call us to lead, when you call us to teach. So Lord, in those places, help us to be men and women who truly honor you, who exemplify you, who are people of character, of godly, biblical character. And we pray that we would serve wholeheartedly for your glory and your glory alone. Help us 